Welcome to The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Eric Kunzman. Eric is a photographer, a professor at RIT, and owner of Booksmart Studio. He also happens to be my predecessor at Mercer County Community College. Uh, we're going to talk about his multifaceted and ongoing social activist project, Felicific Calculus, Technology as a Social Marker of Race, Class, and Economics in Rochester, New York. Uh, Eric discusses how the work started and was influenced by his own experiences growing up in a declining steel town. And later, as an adult, his family faced some really dire financial crises. It's a really wonderful conversation. And even though I've known Eric for many years, I actually learned quite a bit more uh, about my friend. And this work that he's doing, photographing payphones in Rochester, uh, is expanding. Uh, it's taken on other forms, and it's uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, but before we get to that, this episode is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. Uh, the Charcoal Book Club is a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. So I just checked online to see what is shipping this month, and it's Permissions by Emma Hardy. Permissions, the first monograph by photographer Emma Hardy, is a tender document of motherhood and childhood, love and yearning, and leaving home. The images in the book are gathered and distilled from Hardy's personal archive and span a period of 20 years. So check that out at charcoalbookclub.com. Uh, you can either become a member or buy from the store there. And if you haven't checked it out yet, there is bonus content on the Real Photo Show YouTube channel where my guests review two photographs that had a big impact on their practices and how they think about photography. Uh, that is on YouTube. Just search for Real Photo Show. It's also linked in the show notes below. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. Well, hello, Eric. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you for having me, Michael. So uh, for those who may not know, Eric and I have actually known each other for quite a few years now. Do you know that I have been teaching at Mercer for 17 years? Yes, because I've been gone <laughs> for 17 years. Eric is my predecessor at Mercer, uh, and Eric's predecessor is actually a big part of today's conversation, too. So we'll talk about that. But uh, before we, we get into uh, this work that I really want to talk about, your book, uh, Felicity, Phil I knew I was going to screw it up. <laughs> It's, I guess that's why I use it as a title. That's right. Philosophic Calculus, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into all of this, how you ended up at Mercer, and, uh, and where you are now. No problem. So, I originally grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and had always been interested in art. I grew up, all I did was wrestle at the time as well. So, it was art and wrestling. Wrestling, that's um, right. <laughs> but at the time, the Bethlehem Steel, when I was in high school was actually shutting down mm. and all these photojournalists were descending on Bethlehem. And I was like, wait a minute, I guess, you know, Bethlehem was pretty important, you know, growing up in the town, you don't realize it's place in history. And then That's along right. with that, my photo teacher in high school introduces to worker Walker Evans. And I was like, it was hook, line and sinker right then <laughs> there. It was done. It was, um, I'm like, wait, I, cause my favorite subject also is history. So the combination of my art through photography and history it really kind of shaped who I was honestly going forward as a photographer. And when I was in high school, I wound up getting injured pretty well. And I decided not to go to Kutztown where I was going to be able to wrestle. And I went to Ramapo College in Northern Jersey for one oh, year. Oh, Ramapo. Wow. Um, David Freund was teaching <laughs> photography there. Yes. But other than that, um, there was really nothing great going on at the school. And I knew I needed to leave. And ironically, I wound up going to Mercer County Community College for one year and studying under Lou Draper. And Lou is the one who pretty much told me about RIT. He's like, this is the place for you. I never heard of it. And it was between TCNJ, ironically, and RIT, uh -huh. the College of New Jersey. <laughs> right. And I'll never forget the photo professor at TCNJ said, if you come here, because I want to go back to wrestling. And both RIT and TCNJ had wrestling. Hmm. And he said, if you come here instead of RIT, he's like... I will be highly disappointed in you. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm talking about coming to your school. <laughs> He's like, you can't beat RIT. He's like, if Lou's telling you to go there, go. And wow. So I wound up going to RIT, double major in fine art photography and biomedical photography, but took photojournalism and advertising. I was like, you know, I'm here. I want to learn as much as I can. And when I finished that, it's right when digital cameras were coming out. I'm that old. Um, They're handing us Kodak DCS 290s and uh, 640s. Yeah. <laughs> and 
But when it came, I had studied with Willie Osman, who is one of Ansel Adams' print assistants, and learned the zone system, learned complete darkroom control. But then when it came to digital, they're like, oh, just keep clicking print till it looks good. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Something is wrong with this picture. Sorry, digital photography back then was the Wild West. <laughs> oh, it, not that it isn't now, but. Right. <laughs> um, so I decided to stay behind and go for my master's. It was a one-year master's in the printing school. But I focused on inkjet printing at the time. Uh, Which is pretty early on then, right? It was 1999. Uh, yeah, Epson sponsored my thesis, which was because I was also working on iris printers, and they gave me an Epson 1270 and an Epson 2000P. And oh, the 2000P, that was a bear. <laughs> yes, especially considering my entire thesis was black and white or high density, oh, high density so monoch monochromatic this, printing. This is going to get very nerdy, but that's where I learned the word metamorphism. Oh, and so did everybody. <laughs> so. In, in the manual from Epson, it said, do not print black and white with this machine. I'm like, wait a minute. This is my entire thesis. And I'm like, all right. So, I'm in a lab which has fluorescent lights. And I run, brand, build a profile. This is with Kodak wow. Profile Editor. And I print out. I'm like, oh, my God. It's beautiful. I'm like, what are they talking about? Don't print black and white. And I run out to show one of my thesis advisors out smoking when he could smoke on campus. <laughs> And I'm like, look at look, this print looks fine. And it turned and take it out. <laughs> it turned Philadelphia Eagles green. That's right. <laughs> and my advice well, had, it was a 50-50 shot whether it was gonna turn green or purple. Oh. <laughs> and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, wait a minute, watch this, come back inside. <laughs> they had to finish their cigarette, come back inside, like they're like, holy, I've never yeah. seen the tamarism so bad. And yeah, and the rest is history for that, we will say. Yeah. Did you ever, and I don't want to stay on this too long, yep. like I said, I don't want to get too nerdy. Did you ever play with like the, the cone inks and the other, the, the black-white ink sets for printers? Back then, I did not. Now, I am. Because mm -hmm. the, oh, okay. the new formulations from Canon and Epson, um, everything's meant to sit up on top of luster and gloss papers. And yeah. the metamorphism is bad again. So now, believe it or not, I actually have two systems that are piezography, the professional here at the studio, mm. also for making digital negatives and photogravure. Mm -hmm. And for those that don't know, my studio is called Booksmart Studio, and that's why Michael's trying to avoid getting too nerdy because <laughs> I'm totally a nerd. Um, but yeah, up until now, I've never worked with piezo system because I've always been able to control it with the Canon and Epson machines. But um, wow, unfortunately, hmm. those days are over. So Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, check out Booksmart Studio too, by the way, everyone, because there's a lot going on there. But uh, yeah. So, what? Just a, a quick brief back. Um, what did you study at Ramapo? Were you in the visual arts program? I was in the fine art visual arts program there. And right with Dave Freund. I right. took okay. two photo classes, whatever digital or yeah, digital. Uh, photo one <laughs> and photo two, and the history of photography. Um, an adjunct was coming in from New York teaching that. Uh, but that's where I wound up at Mercer for that one year. And mm -hmm. I, and I still say this to today, that I in that one year with Lou being the only faculty member, I learned yeah. more from Lou than I did yeah. all the other <laughs> faculty members at RIT. Second to that would be Willie Osman and Owen Butler at RIT. Mm -hmm. But And I think the biggest reason was Lou is one of those uh, photo faculty that would be in the dark room working next to you during open lab times. Oh, and yeah. that's where just learning and watching what he's doing, um, uh -huh. that's where I credit it. Not that I don't use his critique style, um, <laughs> but that's where – and I wound up back at Mercer because after I finished that master's degree in printing that we were just talking about, uh, Lou had passed away. And I had yeah. been teaching adjunct at RIT and I had just had an exhibition because I traveled to the Southwest with the RIT Southwest Photo Workshop. Showed Lou work. I had just been visiting, popped in to show him some iris prints. He's like, you need to have a show here. Hmm. Trisha Fagan had been hounding Lou for a solo show. And he's like, no, I want you to show this person's work. Um, that was November. And then in February, Lou had passed away. And the dean called and said, you know what? Something greater power is happening here. You need to apply for the job. Can't guarantee it because Rowan is running the search. That's right. The search was outsourced to Rowan. Because I guess there was a lot of politics with adjuncts oh, okay. and other... There was a lot going on. So, because yeah. I, I was about to take a job, the day he called me, I was about to take a job at Hallmark Institute of Photo up in Turner Falls, Mass. Oh, okay. And I'm like, I'm about to take this job. He's like, just <laughs> push him off for a few weeks. I'm like, do you mind if I oh, get yeah. other RIT adjuncts to apply that I know are good just mm -hmm. in case? 
So the two finalists for it wound up being Joe Zakowski and myself, and we drove down together. And Mercer had oh, wow. no idea what to do with us. <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> so. Yeah, no, no. I mean, anyone who's been through the, the the whole hiring search committee process know that uh, people are going to be hurt one way or the other. Uh, and when I was hired uh, after you, a few of the adjuncts who worked for you uh, immediately quit. <laughs> and I understood that because you feel like you've been rejected. Somewhat. Yeah, no, there's always <laughs> that piece to it. But like we always say, it's, it's pieces of a puzzle, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I want to uh, just go back to, to one thing because I know this and you glossed over it. Early on, you know, you were about eight years old. You started playing around with a, a camera and all, but also it wasn't. This wasn't really in the cards for you. You you grew up in a real blue collar steel worker town, and it, your future was probably either going to be steel working or I think you said roofing at one point, right? Absolutely. That's where um, from fourth grade on, every summer, my grandfather and father owned a James Kinsman Roofing time in Bethlehem, and Kinsmans were there was three different roofing companies. It was either you did that or you worked at the steel. And being on the roof every summer, I learned exactly what I didn't want to do. <laughs> but it definitely taught me what hard work really is. Yeah, um, that's yeah, absolutely. That is that is hard work and also a useful skill. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, yes. ironically, my studio needs it right now. It needs a roof, but it's too big. And oh, OK, <laughs> um, I now have fibromyalgia, so I wouldn't be able to move for a week. Oh, yeah. So it's like I almost want to hire a crew just to rip it off. And then I put it on because I've taken care right. for my father-in-law, my house. <laughs> but it's my family. My brother has his own company down there now. My father's hopefully retiring soon. He's now 70, but he's been oh, on the roof. Wow. Still. He can't even walk. Um, oh. So, yeah, no, that's why I was the outcast. And my parents said, you know, if you go to school out of state, you're on your own. Because mm-hmm. I'm one of two cousins and there's 19 of us that got out of the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. Wow. Um, wow. I mean, you're not kidding when you said it, it wasn't. This was uh, your future. Yeah. So, yeah. So then, uh, yeah, it was Mercer and then RIT. Um, and then you did get hired at Mercer. And then you got another master's degree in printmaking and book arts, right? At UArts, U- University Arts in Philly. Yeah, because when I was actually trying to decide then in the end, do I go down to Mercer or do I go to Hallmark um, for the pay? And Mercer's like, well, we'll pay for 50% of a, a master's degree. I'm like, I already uh-huh. have one. <laughs> so, But then I'm like, what else would be... Because I was really interested in books at the time yeah. already. So I'm like, you know what? The MFA at University of Arts looks perfect. And so I never actually applied. And I called the director. I, I don't know why. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, you know, I'm looking at this. It, would you take a part-time student? No, and I couldn't do it full-time because of, you know, being the coordinator photo at Mercer. And she said, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, well, I have an MS from the RIT printing school. She goes, wait, RIT printing school. I go, yeah. She goes, okay, we need to meet. I'm like, well, I'm coming down to the Jersey Shore in about two weeks. Okay, well, can you spend a day come out? I'm like, sure. So, I dr- from LBI, I drove to Philly and the director's like, well, th- these are the classes you would take this semester. I'm like, all right, do I need to fill out an application? No, you're fine. So, <laughs> it was just like, uh, so I would actually take the classes in the morning and then drive up either I-95 or oh, that's right. Turnpike, turn on my literally switch my hat and then i was teaching <laughs> and in the afternoon and evenings till 10 30 at night all oh the time. yeah so yep well so it was, a, it was a pretty strategic decision you teaching at mercer yeah because that's where i was really trying to figure out where to go and then mm-hmm. with the fact that they pay for second part of a you know a mm-hmm. master's like you know what I'm, i might as well and that's why i did that for three years and then i wound up getting married to my wife and she made me promise we'd move back to rochester she would go down for two years Oh, okay. And Mercer tried giving her a full-time position. But the, ironically, she loved the Rochester City School District and they paid for That's her... That's wild. They paid for her second master's that she wanted <laughs> to move back here. So so there's a chance... I mean, there was a little chance you would have stayed at Mercer. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I hadn't gotten married. Yeah. So then we wouldn't be sitting here talking. <laughs> no, no. I, I don't know what I'd be doing. I mean, talk about fate. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Sandra. <laughs> Yeah, all these uh, <laughs> lovely forks in the road. That's right. Wow. Yeah, butterfly effects. Um, so yeah. So now you're at you're at RIT. You're teaching. You've had you adjunct teach in one area, and then you're full time teacher in another area. Do I have that right? Yeah. Nobody knows what to do with me. <laughs> um, so when I came back, ironically from Mercer County, 
because I was teaching at RIT before that and came back, I really had a problem because I don't know about you, but the students at Mercer, whether it's the adult or younger students, they work hard. They have those same goals Mm -hmm. that I felt like when I was roofing, you know, that I want to get somewhere. Yes. And I'll never forget the last year I was there, all five students got into their first choice, whether it was SVA, Pratt, Mm -hmm. SCAD, and seeing how they worked. When I came back to RIT and I had students in my class and they didn't want to work, they're like, well, we're at the best photo school, you know, we want to work hard. I couldn't deal with that. So I only stayed uh-huh. part time and I started Booksmart Studio in 2005. Oh, okay. So that's where I was teaching adjunct. And then my current assistant professorship, I was a lecturer for 10 years through the National Technical Institute for the Deaf. And it's that same mentality where when I was teaching as an adjunct, I was often working with the deaf students. And a lot of times the students, they've been, you know, looked down upon for so long because they might be in a mainstream school and communication. Mm. So that when the person was retiring, they're like, you need to apply for my job. I'm like, but I don't have signed communication. She's like, you will learn it. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the patience. Uh, you, you see something in the students. So I applied for the position. So that's why I teach full time through NTID, which is called Visual Communication Studies. Okay. And up until last year, I was the support faculty member. So I would help all the deaf and hard of hearing students that were in the photo school. Okay. And then I teach <laughs> for a different hat. I teach for the School of <laughs> Photographic Arts and Sciences, the graduate and undergraduate students, the printing and color management courses. So, so I can't be bored basically. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, no, I get it. And, uh, it's funny. I was just telling you before we started that I'm, I'm working on these articulation agreements with other schools. And for those who don't know, that's when, you know, they can do two years at Mercer and then two years at another school. And, and there's a, a smooth, easy transfer of credits. And everybody says that this photo program, and I'll call it our photo program has a great reputation and they, they've never had problems with our students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that was wonderful to hear. The facilities alone, if you look at what Mercer County Community College had, you know, mm-hmm. the, the two gang dark rooms, I know you've changed it now somewhat. Yeah, um, it's a studio and a dark room now. Yeah, yep. yeah. And the diversity of the students. Yeah. With, yep. you know, race, economics, education level. And everything. There's, there's everything, which, but I've always found that they respected one another, which. Uh, absolutely. A, a lot of respect for, for each other. I've never had, I've never had any real issues or conflicts with, you know, because when you, and you know, um, and those listening, well, a lot of you listening know, when you talk about artwork, it gets very personal. And uh, I've always had very respectful classrooms. And as you can imagine, in, in today, today's sort of conversations, things can get pretty heady. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I, I'll never forget, I had a student um, who's since passed away, uh, Dan Ericardi, he had Tourette's. And there was another oh, gentleman in the class of Tourette's. Yeah. But the students... He was doing a presentation and said something mm-hmm. that wasn't really correct. But yep. the other one of the other students made an accepting joke of it. And that's, right. that's when Danny, you could see he calmed down and continued on because the stress went away. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, like I said, that respect factor has always been something that I admired down there. Yeah. We should uh, switch gears a little bit and let's talk about this very large, all-encompassing project you've been working on, Philosophic Calculus, Technology as a Social Marker of Race, Class, and Economics in Rochester, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's really an amazing body of work that's not just photography, but you had researchers put together some data and statistics, and there's maps, and there's foldouts, and two wonderful essays one by Benjamin Hickey and one by Dr. Allison Nordstrom. And so I don't have it in front of me. I should have it in front of me. Oh, you want to tell us who the researchers are? Yes. <laughs> Give them I, uh, Rebecca, shout out. Uh, Rebecca Walker, she is the Digital Humanities and Social Sciences Librarian at RIT. And then Dr. Janelle Duda-Banwar, who used to work at the Center for Public Safety Initiatives. And since then, she's left RIT and she now has her own research form called On the Ground. Oh, that's great. And that's where she's left RIT to do more grassroots research here in Rochester. She does a lot with um, different homeless advocacy groups, mm-hmm. um, just, you know, everything and anything, also different research groups for criminal justice. And that's what she's known for. Well, let's start with just the title alone, which is based on a, a philosopher's idea, uh, Jeremy Bentham, talking about kind of the rightness of an action, the value of pain and pleasure in decision-making? Sure. I guess the best way to explain that, too, will be going back to why I started this project. 2005 to 2012, I didn't take any photographs. It was all Booksmart Studio. I was in Mm -hmm. the neighborhood of the arts in Rochester, New York. 
And when 2008 hit, we wound up in serious debt. And the way my corporation paperwork was filed, I had no protection. So I had to work through that, which also led to a holding of another project, which was the Lou Draper book, just because of trying to pay down this unsurmount. I thought it was unsurmountable at the time, amount of debt. But what that allowed me to realize is how New York State was horrible to have a business in. And that's where in 2012, I finally realized like, why is Booksmart Studio not only doing printing, but we have the galleries, try and make books, but we're also doing the supply sales. And the supply sales are taking over everything. And that's what put us in debt in 2008. Mm. Um, so 2012, I sold off the printing aspect, or we got rid of it, to Shades of Paper down in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Because um, we worked with them at Mercer quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And kind of got back to the grassroots. And I was finally able to start taking my own photographs. And it really became about the economics of owning a business in upstate New York. Well, then I started teaching in 2017, my, the building owner that we had been in for 10 years, we had 13,000 square feet, put us on a month-to-month lease. So I started mm. looking around, trying to find a different place because we had an HP Indigo printing press at the time. And as we were looking around, I was looking neighbor of the arts. I couldn't afford anything. You know, something small was $250,000. And a friend said, hey, look at this in the Ninth Ward. It's a church for $42,000. Hmm. I'm like, wait a minute, there's no way I could heat that in the winter. Um, <laughs> for those that don't know where Rochester, New York is, we're actually more Canadian than New York, New Yorker because um, we're just across Lake Ontario from it. And so it's nice and cold. So then I was like, you know what? I'm thinking outside the box. And I found this location where Booksmart Studio is, which is by our minor league baseball stadium known as the Hosanna neighborhood. And I was able to buy a 5,500 square foot space for $62,000. And, but when I told all my colleagues at RIT, they're like, wait, why would you go there? It's a war zone. We can't have, and it wasn't just RIT, it was my friends where we live in the suburbs. Right. And that knee-jerk reaction is why I started figuring out, wait, I got to know all the neighborhood kids when I backed up the first truck, the families, all came over and introduced themselves. It was something straight out of a movie from the 1950s, 1960s. And that's why I started looking at why these people were being labeled. And I noticed three things. Abundance of corner stores, because there's we have a food desert here in Rochester. There's no grocery right. stores. Neighborhood bars and payphones. And so I s- settled on photographing the payphones at first and no idea why I was doing it, an exercise I needed to do. And then all of a sudden, I noticed there was about 45 payphones in about six square blocks near my studio. So then I started photographing them. Then it started branching up more. Then I started noticing people were still using the payphones in 2018. I'm like, wait a mm-hmm. minute. There's something I'm not getting here. That That's the strange part, right? Because I, I remember when there were still lots of payphones around Jersey City and New York City, but you never saw people using them and most of them didn't work because mm-hmm. it was just that they were in the process of canceling all the contracts and uninstalling and deinstalling all the, the phones and phone booths. But that's not what you were witnessing. No, and that's where I really blame it on the socioeconomics of Rochester, New York. And I'd say about 35% of our payphones work. So in 2018, then I reached out to Frontier and they provided me the list of the 1,455 payphones that we still had in Rochester, New York. So I've been on a mission to document all them. But because of learning that the payphones were still being used, that's when I started looking. I'm like, there's no way that Frontier is making money off of this. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's where the term Fellowship Calculus comes in. It's really, you know, algorithm that's used for the greater good for humanity. And here for once, we actually have a corporation that's actually making a decision for the greater good of this community by keeping these payphones working. Yeah, that was surprising. I looked them up because of, of what you wrote about them. And they have on their site, their three main goals are customer first, treat one another with respect, and be active in our communities. That's pretty impressive. Absolutely. And now, uh, I wish they would still talk to me, but now <laughs> they, I'm now shunned by Frontier Communications. What? <laughs> Because And nobody's told me why, but I really believe it's because of the subtitle, which is technology is a social marker of race, oh, class, and economics. Okay. But the first part, Philosophic Cac, is talking about how they're actually doing something great for the community up here. And there was an article in Bloomberg Business Week. The local newspaper up here, the Free One City News, ran an article. The local news channels. So now, when I've tried talking to them about the next phase of the project, which is converting the payphones to being free... Nobody will talk to me now, but now I know directly who's ripping out the payphones here in Rochester, New York at this point, and I've reached out to them because the next phase is a project we're calling Good Phones, which is taking the payphones and converting them to voice over IP and they'll be free and want to really work with them because they're already doing something great for the community. So why not pair up 
Um, but I cannot get even a return email at this point. Uh, so. Well, for whatever reason, they're they're still doing some good work. And uh, I know that they're also very invested right now in running fiber optics to more rural underserved areas. So yeah, whatever well, frontier. <laughs> that's because New York State is putting a lot of money into making sure the rural areas are taken care of. Um, ironically, yes. about... Yep. Five months ago, I was in the main library of Rochester photographing the payphones, and the senator and congressperson mm-hmm. were ironically below me, and I had to start taking a video talking about how they need communication within the downtown Rochester, <laughs> and all I wanted to do, but every news station was out, what about the phones or payphones? All right. I bit my tongue. <laughs> um, but that's where we also have... Tom Galasano, who owns Greenlight Networks, which has been running fiber for a long time. Mm. But he's not touching downtown at this time. Not that he won't, because he does a lot for you know charity as well, the Children's Hospital up here. Uh, but that's where, unfortunately, Frontier is a little bit behind Greenlight. So we'll see what will happen with that. But mm-hmm. that's where we would like to work with either of those companies to help provide the data for the free phones. That's really Im- impressive. I want to um, you know make sure we do talk about the book itself. The photographs are done traditionally in black and white film. And Dr. Nordstrom writes about the work, I think, in an incredibly beautiful, intelligent way that that it's sort of a, a cross between that new topographics idea, that modernist idea of meaning and beauty through detail. You know, the, the, the beautiful portraits of, of these areas, these places with the phones, but also being part of this kind of social landscape and social concern idea that maybe comes more from the 30s or or from the FSA. You know, the idea that these aren't static, just beautiful portraits. These are, in many ways, activist images as well. Absolutely. And that's right? where, ironically, it's kind of going back to growing up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania and having Walker Evans come through. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why 99% of them are actually shot in color film, believe it or not, and then converted. Oh, to- <laughs> I do believe it with you, Eric. I do. (laughs) Uh, Just having more control over that conversion. Uh, But it's also a a matter of time because RIT, we have a film lab and they can process color, but they don't process black and white. So that's, and also, you know, when I don't process here in the Jobos downstairs, but a big part of it is it's on film for, at first it was because, you know, the demise of Kodak, Xerox, Bausch and Lomb, all of our blue collar industry here in Rochester is what's led to our socioeconomic situation so mm-hmm. that's why trying to utilize those tools to document this became important then it really good thing because now when i'm on the street with the hasselblad camera and i also take a digital backup in case either myself or the students mess up the film processing at rit um, but people see me working with the hasselblad and they will walk up like what are you doing why are you photographing the payphone and is that film and <laughs> only in downtown rochester will people still know what kodak actually is Right. And the conversations I've had with people on the streets of Rochester, I've learned so much about my community here in Rochester that I would never have learned otherwise. That I feel like if I was shooting, even if I was shooting digital the entire way, I don't think people would have approached me the same way. That's right. That's and right. Yeah, that became a, a conversation starter. It right. really has. And that's why a lot of what I talk about now when I'm talking about the work has come from many of those conversations and it's whether somebody, you know, is dealing on the street and will come up and talk to me and then say, like, okay, time for you to leave. You're scaring my customers. It's like, okay. And <laughs> sh- but showing that respect at the same time of, you know, mm-hmm. they're doing what they need to do. And that's one of the situations here in Rochester, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah, that was the reason. Also, the other part for converting them for black and white is the whole reason I started this project was the labeling of the individuals in downtown. So if I showed the images in color, and believe me, there's some beautiful color photos People are like, hmm. offer them as NFTs because then it'll only be that way. <laughs> uh, but it's really to break down some of that class and race barrier of, okay, this photograph must be in the suburbs compared to, oh, this one's downtown. And mm. looking at the details, we all know what black and white can do for that as well. But I right. really want you, when the book you were talking about is actually an exhibition catalog from SEPA Gallery in Buffalo, New York, from April through June of 2021. I had an exhibition there in all their galleries. And with that, all the phones are labeled the phone number, address, and zip code. You had Mm. mentioned the data before. And with the data, there was a walking guide which broke down, you know, household income, the poverty levels, all the different features of Rochester that come from census information by zip code. 
So if you wanted to look at, you know, if you're not from Rochester, you don't know, oh, well, that 14611, that's where my studio is right now. It is, you know, 75% of children are in poverty in this particular neighborhood. Average income is $29,000. But Mm. if you care to look at the zip code and the relationship of the images after you view the image, that's when I want you to be able to analyze, you know, I did not expect that to be one of the poorer areas. And really talk about how we're applying these labels. And, you know, it could be the social marker being the payphone, how we're prejudging these areas. So Right. And the reason why the payphone stood out to you, well, the reason why the payphone is the social marker is they were being removed, not only because it was assumed that everyone just had, you know, cell phones now, which is not the case, but also they were seen as places uh, for drug activity or crime or, you know, people who didn't want to be traced or tracked were using payphones. And you also discovered if you just dug a little deeper, that was not the case of why the, you know, the majority of these calls were being made by payphones. In some cases, they were real lifelines, right? Absolutely. And that was where in Detroit, they had actually removed most of the payphone, you know, policymakers, you know, only people using them, you know, for drug or crime. That was one of the knee-jerk reactions. And that's where one of the things I've been doing is when I see somebody using the payphone, I will pull over and interview them. Only audio because mm-hmm. this is video again. You see the person, you know, where you're applying that labeling. And the number one thing that all of them state is they hate how people look at them like they're doing something wrong. When they could be calling their family members and then they're still alive, calling a doctor. Right. Um, which is basic lifeline necessities. Um, and that's the one thing I've heard over and over from these individuals. And I mean, doesn't see any more telling than that. Right. In Benjamin Hickey's essay, he writes about that aspect of it, you know, being associated with criminal behavior and assuming everyone has mobile phones anyway. But he also writes a lot about your uh, inspiration from Louis Draper and Kamonge uh, as as a mentor and as maybe where some of the, your interest in these uh, social concerns come from because, of course, Draper was photographing during the civil rights era and the Kamonge group was is known for civil rights era photography as well. Um, you know, you come out of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, you know, you, you know that this, what it's like to live in a place where uh, you're being failed by leadership and, and then you end up moving to Rochester uh, in a neighborhood where people are warning you not to move into and all. Do you consider yourself more of a, a social activist at this point? Or I mean, where do you sort of position yourself now? I definitely do now. And one that mm. there's, I think there's really four factors to that. I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Since then, there's a casino now where the Bethlehem still used to be. Uh, my parents have gotten hooked by it. Oh. So there's that factor. Studying under Lou is definitely a major factor because that was one of the mm-hmm. concerns that Lou would talk about. I was like, why are you taking the photograph? Like, what is the purpose for it? Yes, there's conceptual photographers. I am not a conceptual photographer. I am definitely mm-hmm. more, as Trisha Fagan labeled me, which I think is kind of ironic, is <laughs> a romantic social documentary photographer. <laughs> and I've accepted that term. At first, I was like, what romantic? <laughs> um, but it is kind of that nostalgia going back to FSA mm-hmm. and having the you know the activist part. The f- third thing was the fact of what happened to me economic-wise, having the business in 2008 oh, yes. and knowing what that did to me physically and mentally. And then mm-hmm. the fourth is my wife working in the Rochester City School District. That's right. And knowing yes. we have the worst school district in all of New York State. Um, we've gone through eight superintendents in 12 years now at mm. this point. So there's no stability. So it's all those things. And by educating myself, number one, from the people on the street, as well as my colleagues that I'm collaborating with, you know, the social scientists, what I've learned, and that's where now the photo project itself, it's like, okay, it's a photography project. It's now expanded outside of Rochester, New York. And it always has when I'd go to portfolio reviews. Mm -hmm. I would always, and even like Mary Virginia Swanson's masterclass in 2019, I went to Tucson early to say, you know what? I knew there was... a larger homeless population there, figuring they'd still have phones. And through the portfolio reviews, I've learned from the people I've sat with and met. And that was one of the best things. If you ever go to portfolio review, don't go with a finished body of work. I went when I was mm. starting this out and a lot of people helped shape. A lot of suggestions have been left behind, but many were taken. <laughs> um, but one was when I was down at Swanee's was I came across a homeless encampment and I saw two phones. 
And I started photographing it. Two gentlemen came over and photographed. One was black, one was white. And like, why are you doing that? I'm like, well, this is my project. And they said, you know, they turned off this payphone on these payphones on us two weeks ago because we built this mm. encampment six weeks ago. Now we have to go to such and such and such and such streets to use a phone. And the one gentleman's in a, in a wheelchair. So I went to those locations. Phone still worked. And that just further proves what Detroit did by, you know, cutting off access to communication. But that's where I also learned, like, wait, why am I a white gentleman standing on a soapbox trying to tell this story? And that's why I immediately came back and started recording audio that people still using the phones. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where, as much as I would say, kind of being an activist, I'm also really a student where I'm learning so much as I'm going through this project. And that's why it became important to show the data. Not just, mm -hmm. And a lot of times people are like, oh, it's obsolete technology. I'm like, no, it's not that. Please read about my work. To make it simple, there's a YouTube video that Dr. Alison Nordstrom, as she walked through SEPA, there is a social documentary up on YouTube also about the work. Because some people just look at the images, analyze it. It's like, no, there's much, much, many more layers to this onion. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you say you're not a conceptual artist, but there, there's a, a huge conceptual element to this work in that if you're just looking at the photographs, you might think it's some kind of romantic nostalgia for the payphone, right? Mm -hmm. But if you, if you take the time to read the essays, then consider the work, it, that's when it becomes much more meaningful. So there's the conceptual element is you do need context, I think, to really r truly appreciate this work and not think it's just some some guy you know who's who's romantic for payphones. <laughs> Absolutely, and I, I think a good important part piece to that is who's the audience then? And this is something I've been challenged on by a few people: is if it's in a mm -hmm. gallery museum, am I really approaching the right audience of where I'm trying to talk about this? Um, so what you just mentioned, that's something I've been very critical of. That's why going to the free paper and having it published mm -hmm. there, where hopefully then it gets out to more of the community. I've given a talk at the Eastman Museum here in Rochester. Completely different audience, completely different feedback afterwards. And yeah. it's like, okay, I only touch the surface with these individuals. They just can't get into it like the rest of me. And it's, it's because of the entitlement most of us had that we're in that audience. Right. It's, it's an incredible body of work because it it is headed it has so many directions to it and so many layers to it so congratulations by the way yeah thank you it's still it's still going <laughs> still going um, yeah no you, you you've got this now this truly like community intervention aspect to it with these these free public phones yeah yeah absolutely the the good phones which is you know trying to convert them mm -hmm. to voice over ip the other parts of that will hopefully they could be sat phones um also solar powered that way when let's say the next hurricane Katrina or Sandy comes through, not that it's coming mm -hmm. through Rochester, but how do we make sure we have access communication? Cause even if it's a portable cell tower, people have power. What neighborhoods are they going to put that in is what we need to think about. Right. Um, so there's that part, but I also still have about 450 pay phones in Rochester still to document. Oh wow. <laughs> because of having that list. I know the hard ones are getting into like the jail. Um, oh, okay. So Allison Nordstrom had mentioned like, if you can't get in or something, you know, there's no way. What about at least taking a photograph of the outside saying, okay, there's five in here statistically. I'm yeah. like, you know what? At some point, I will have to accept that. Um, but I still am documenting it. Whenever I travel uh, for exhibitions, mm -hmm. I was just in Alabama for one of our big shots. But it was called Shine the Light at a deaf school. And I always make sure I take some time. And that started out because of when Magnum was in Rochester many years ago, a lot of the stories that came out made Rochester look like Sorry, buddy, but I have to curse on this one. Shithole was the only way to put it. And well, that, that's not surprising. That's, that's what they did. Yeah. That's why what I'm trying to do now is say, you know, I'm not putting down the city that I'm obviously living in, my studio's mm -hmm. in, I'm within the community, but saying, look, there are other communities that have the same socioeconomics that Rochester does that are still utilizing obsolete technology, at least that's what people believe, as a lifeline. Right. So... We have a, a, a little more time left. Why don't we um, just talk about a, a kind of a, a lighter project or book that you sent me, which is so beautiful. It's this little book called Exposing Saints, a roadmap to the photography saints of the United States. And it's, it's, it's actually, you know, fun. And it's, it's, a, it's an imagined, well, it's a physical and an imagined photographic pilgrimage, like some travels you made. 
but you take these sort of photographic terms and photographic sort of um, ideas that we embrace about you know what photography is, and you turn them into saints, which is really wonderful. And it's beautifully uh, put together. They're you know the pages fold out. So the size of the book is meant to go in your camera bag. So when you need ah, when you yes. need to pull the power of these photo saints, you can do so. <laughs> uh, but everybody knows me as as I think you were saying before, you know, the social activist social documentary. So this is a book I taught a group from Mercer County Community College, and we went through the Southwest. And mm-hmm. I wound up, and some of the adjuncts were along with me. We had students, yes, and we all wound up praying to the photo saints. Was kind of the joke because of. <laughs> a conflict we will say between two students which we eventually were sent home <laughs> but because of that we were just you know trying to make light on it and then mm-hmm. once the students were gone the full class dynamics changed and everybody was able to photograph but there's little innuendos it's all photo geek humor in this book yes it certainly is <laughs> so it starts out in new jersey with f4 and as you go throughout our path to go to the southwest depth of field gets higher <laughs> but it also kind of goes a little bit through the history of photography. But my feelings on New Jersey at the time, I didn't have. So that's why it starts out with St. Poppy for paparazzi was kind of the joke. Mm-hmm. But then it kind of goes through the idea of, you know, large format, you know, decisive moment, St. Grande, St. Right. And it's really <laughs> meant to be a description of the saint. You flip up the map. There's a potential photograph. My favorite is St. Bit since it's just bits. Uh, <laughs> And then kind of a prayer that you could use if you're having a really bad day with your Epson piezo printer. You can, you know, <laughs> use that to pray for the powers. But it's sometimes we all take ourselves way too seriously. Yes, with, absolutely. And this is my way of showing that, you know, we have the best, both as educators and as photographers, both of us, we have the best jobs in the world. Mm-hmm. Even our worst day of teaching, we're only teaching for 30 weeks out of the year. Right. And then we have right. 22 other weeks where we can really focus on our work. And then being a photographer, mm-hmm. we're recording what we want to of our lives and our... No, this is all choice. So, <laughs> we, we, we choose these things. Yes. And we're lucky to have them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why people are always like, why do you work so much? I'm like, well, number one, my photography, I said, I have seven years where I didn't take a single photograph. Mm-hmm. I'm still making up for that. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm the same way. I... um. When my uh, first child was born, my son was born, um, I was rebuilding a house in Jersey City and, you know, taking care of him. And, and I just started at Mercer and trying to, you know, learn that uh, program. And I don't think I photographed for three years. You're you're one of the few people who I think is possibly busier than I am. I don't know. I don't even like to compete. I just, <laughs> I, I just like to hang out with other people that are just as busy as I yes. am. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And we don't have time. No. no, but at the same time, that's why collaboration. No, we do. Yeah. You know, and yes. that's where I think you're the same way that really one of the biggest things now that even with the studio and my tagline is, you know, artist, educator, collaborator. Mm-hmm. And number one, by being able to share these experiences with everybody else and also build on it. That's like the MFA photo review that we worked on. Yes. Couldn't do it alone, but also everybody has their own strengths for different pieces. And it's like, if we try to go in through this experience alone, we're never going to push. And that's the same reason for having collaborators for the payphone work. We can only mm-hmm. push it so far and realize where we have weaknesses. And there's nothing wrong with any of us having weaknesses. Oh, no. The the fact that you brought in people who can really handle data and research was genius because I, I look at that as like, I could never, I could never put that kind of data and research together. <laughs> One day I will show you the horrible maps that I try to make. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> It, they look like they're made by a kindergartner. I'm like, this is not going to work. And, and speaking of, you know, kindergartner, I think you probably the same thing too with, you know, now involving our children within our work. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning like my daughter can spot a payphone before I can now. That's right. Uh, yes. I think I told you the story when, you know, COVID was hitting. We were out in San Francisco for an exhibition. Mm-hmm. We're going into Mirror Woods. And as we're going to Mirror Woods, my daughter at that time, 22, she'd be five. And on yeah. the shuttle, she yells out payphone. <laughs> and all the adults turn around and look at her like, what? Yeah. She gets off the shuttle, <laughs> skips over to it, picks up and goes, it works. Now they're all looking for the uh. candid camera. <laughs> and then with the candid camera part, 
she loves to watch what I'm doing. She's my best critic on this work, by the way. And I'm not, mm. I'm not just saying this. That's great. She yeah. will tell me when it's boring. She will tell me, oh, well, this is where my eye looks. I love that I taught my daughter. That's amazing. She, yeah. she understands visual hierarchy. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and so with that, she was standing there with me and, you know, I'm photographing. She likes to look through the lens finder. Like, is that what you're photographing sometimes? <laughs> like, well, I'm including the tree because it shows the environment. And uh-huh. uh, 30-something comes over and starts using the phone. And she's like, Dad, what's he doing? I'm like, you know what he's doing. He's calling. She goes, no. Why is he holding his cell phone in his hand? I'm like, he probably doesn't remember the number he's calling. And she goes, well, I remember our home number. And the guy hears, the gentleman hears. Oh, no. Goes, well, I don't remember the number I'm calling. And like a true <laughs> She puts her hands on her hips and goes, well, you should. And I'm just like... <laughs> why isn't this videotaped that's right (laughs) and so but this project really has affected my entire family they're involved yeah that way now my son Mm -hmm. he's very conscientious on you know the economics of this downtown area where Mm -hmm. when he's done with toys he'll be like can i take it to harry jr or you know yes the three kids that i first met harry elijah and grumpy kid's name was truly grumpy (laughs) um but harry elijah he plays with harry once a while so it's one of those things where he's thinking about it. Like he knows what right. he has, which I think for me, for my kids to learn that is one of the most powerful things that I can teach as a father. So, Oh, absolutely. To just keep them out of a bubble, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keep them exposed to the, the world. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why we, uh, you know, head back to Jersey City to visit our neighbors you know, keep in touch with them. We head into New York, you know, once a week just to, they're not just thinking, you know, Rutherford is the world, right? Because this is a beautiful little community. <laughs> but we, you know, we want them to know it's not everything. Yeah. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Did I miss anything? Uh, anything coming up? One thing I would actually like to talk about is for me, I think we talk about sometimes being, you know, a photographer and we take our exhibitions and the idea of that audience. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I will be doing is, so I have a solo show coming up at the Rhode Island Center for Photography, but Oh, great. we did the same thing at SEPA Gallery in Buffalo, which is when you walk into the gallery, how do we actually make you feel something before you walk out? And yes, it's great looking at the photographs of Rochester, having the data. I have payphones installed where you dial a number and then you can hear the audio of the people that are actually being interviewed about why they're still utilizing the phones. Oh, okay. But again, and I think this is where the activism part comes in that you were mentioning before, is you just walk out and you get to forget it within two, three seconds. Um, mm-hmm. So at SEPA, one thing that we did, and Fuji sponsored it, Victor Ha and some of the others, of uh, donating three cameras. And we were looking for a social marker in that community. And there happened to be enough payphones left over in Buffalo. Went out, searched it first. And we invited the Buffalo community to go out and document their payphones. And they would submit them on a Google form. And in the basement annex of the gallery, we would print each and every image that was submitted whether it was an iphone or beautiful film photo some people were taking screenshots from google maps counted Mm. because Mm -hmm. all they had to do is provide us the cross streets or address of the phone and what people didn't realize is as we were adding the photographs our goal at first was 150 uh, thanks to you know having cameras sponsored yeah uh we wound up with 652 submissions that's great and we plastered we were just making dye sub prints adding it but what people didn't realize was at the closing where we awarded the, the cameras, some of my images, and we had some other prizes as well, we took that data and we mapped Buffalo. And uh. we threw them up on, it was outside where we did the awards, so we threw it on glass. And now we were able to talk about Buffalo. And I took mm-hmm. off my jacket. I was just standing there. As we had these up on the wall. Nobody knew who I was at that time, beginning of the evening. And you heard them talk about, because we labeled, why was this one photographed one time? This one was photographed 25 times. Mm. And you can look at the census data and compare them. Right. So now I had Buffalonians talking about, wait, why did only one person photograph in the Perry projects? Well, if you look at the census data, you can mm-hmm. start to have that analysis of your own community. And that's one thing that whenever I exhibit this work throughout the United States, what I want to do is work with gallery directors and think about, it's not always going to be payphones, but what is a social marker in your neighborhood? So we start talking about, the labeling that's being applied. So that's where, yes, we've talked about payphones here, but one thing I'm really talking about, hopefully, is going to be the idea of social markers within communities. And we will 
we're actually going to put a national call for entries out, which will be, you know, looking at social markers within your community. We're not just looking for pay phones. We want you to think about what is a social marker or identifier of class or race within your locations. And then we will also be doing a scavenger hunt for either the full New England or the United States uh, where mm-hmm. people can submit just like we did at SEPA Gallery. And the last thing I would like to say with closing is, believe it or not, now if you go up to Instagram and you look at the hashtag payphone, uh-huh. how many posts do you think there are? Uh, payphone? Yep, of payphone. 10,000. 300,000 at this point. Wow. And, and there's about <laughs> 20 to 22 photographers that are kind of doing it a little bit more seriously and oh, posting okay. all the time. But there's a lot of people now right. talking about payphone. But the idea is we are trying to make a group where people can submit their images again with the cross street or address. And then yeah. through Google Forms, we get longitude latitude. We're looking to build a national map where if you want to look nationally, then where the phones are still located, whether they work or not. And how they relate to those communities. Okay. Yeah. And pull that census data. Um, so that's something mm-hmm. that I'm trying to really work with a lot. Like I said, because I, know I have access to the Instagram photographers, but mm-hmm. other people that are interested in it, it's something that we're going to be building hopefully over the next year or two and just keep adding to it uh, so we can really start to examine these this one type of social marker we have along with the census data. Right. So. right. What, what a great way to, to crowdsource census data, even if you're not fully aware of why you're participating, the data is still useful. Yeah. yeah, now at least the payphone photographers will all know why we're doing it. But it's like, all right, <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> you will say, so own your photograph, you'll be credited. But it's like, let's build something mm-hmm. where we can really examine the overall United mm-hmm. States. And this is not a project that I own by any means, is the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. But trying to talk, get more dialogue going. And that's your part with the artist talks. I try to make sure we're working with other faculty and talk about cross disciplinary. That's what this project really is the idea of visual studies. Absolutely. Well, thank you. This has been a fantastic conversation. Now, um, I didn't mention at the beginning, you were on earlier and we did talk about the the MFA portfolio review project that is still ongoing. But if you want to uh, learn more about that, you know, uh, see Eric's previous episode. <laughs> it's also going to be one thing we did learn is we have to do it biennial. Yes, that's uh, right. We that's right. took care of 2020, 2021. And then we realized, you know, what, it's too much work. So we last year's group that I applied will be combined with this year's and then it will be biennial for the students. So, yes. Yes. All right. Well, thank you. Eric. Thank you for having me, Michael. All right. Let me know next time you're coming down to Jersey and maybe I can make my way up there. I need to come yeah. in, or even Jersey City. So those areas, I need to come document the payphones down there. Oh, there we go. All right. Hey, I'll, I'll travel around with you. Sounds good. All right. Bye, everyone. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Real Photo Show is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton. Music by Matteo Chauvin Dalton. You can find bonus content from the show on our YouTube channel. Just search for Real Photo Show. The podcast can be found on all your favorite podcast players. And please rate the show with all the stars available on your preferred player.